0: You're listening to Money and Meaning, Unlikely Allies Building New Markets for Impact, with your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. Check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. Let's join the conversation.
1: Welcome to Season 2 of Money and Meaning. This is your host, Lindsay Smalling. Welcome back everyone! We took a little break after Season 1 and are excited to launch into Season 2. We've got a full schedule in 2019 of live SOCAP events and interviews with unlikely allies growing the markets for impact. In this first episode of Season 2, we compiled some highlights from the main stage at SOCAP 18. SOCAP is the flagship event that we host each fall at Fort Mason Center in San Francisco with over 3,000 attendees joining us from around the world, all coming together to advance sustainable solutions to the toughest social and environmental challenges. These excerpts were selected because they touch on key themes that ran throughout the full conference. Themes of shifting power, of distinguishing real impact from fake impact, and a growing revolution to restore justice to the global economy and pursue purpose alongside profit you can view the full conversations from these speakers and all of our main stage on our YouTube channel at SOCAP Markets. Let's jump in.
2: I was told recently in a speech I was giving in Singapore and and the guy said, well, I don't know, thinking about betting on a future without gender-based violence, don't you think that's a little Pollyanna? I said, Elon Musk gets to say that we could live on the moon, and I think we shouldn't beat the crap out of women and transgender people,
1: and I'm Pollyanna. That's a little soundbite from Joy Anderson of Criterion Institute, who you'll hear more from in this episode, but I just want to brag that our speakers are trailblazers— they speak boldly and are often contrarian in their thinking, but it's all in pursuit of a more equitable and sustainable future. One of the most contrarian voices at SOCAP 18 was Anand Giridharadas, who recently released the book Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. He asked challenging but important questions for an audience of impact investors and others who are working to create change in the world.
3: When the winners of our age devote themselves to changing the world in ways that just so happen to be good for them, or just so happen to be fine for them, or unthreatening to them, they put themselves in the uncomfortable position of those lords and ladies in Downton Abbey, who did everything they could to help the serfs except question the fact that they were the only ones who owned all the land. They put themselves in the uncomfortable position of America's founders who wrote so movingly about freedom and equality except for their slaves. They put themselves in the position of, to quote, to paraphrase Leo Tolstoy, the man who sits on a man's back choking him, thinking of all ways possible to save him except by getting off his back. So what do you do? What do you do? If you're persuaded by me even a little, you can first of all come to my book signing at 1 p.m. If you've been feeling this quietly, if you've been shouting this from the rooftops all along, and I can tell from some of your faces you have, what do you do? Above all, the answer to a winners take all society is a society in which the winners take less. This should be the focus of anyone working seriously on social justice today. So much of what passes for world changing in contemporary American life is putting lipstick on the pig of a bad power distribution. The work of justice in America today cannot be merely to give back and do well by doing good, it must be to change who has power. I believe that we should all be fighting for an America in which the rich and powerful have less to give away to begin with, and in which they have created fewer social problems that require ex post facto remediation. I believe that the number of billionaires we have in this city, 74, and in this country, and the number of billions they have is not a sign of our success, but a measure of our failure. And that if we keep chasing the wrong glories, we will keep living the same cruelties, but I am also a realist, and I understand that we live down here in a sublunary world in which there is this system right now, and there are those people with money, and there are those billions to be given away. So how can they do it better? First of all, by resisting the temptation to solve, solve, solve. The winners of our age should go deeper than their favorite question, what can we do? To appropriate JFK, I say, ask not what you can do for your country. Ask what you've done to your country. If you're Google, we don't need you to create some little initiative to save America. We need you to stop being a monopoly that sucks oxygen out of much of the economy and society of this country and is eviscerating the news business. If you're a Wall Street bank, we actually don't need you mentoring 10,000 women. We need you to just avoid causing millions of women to lose their home. If you made your fortune at Walmart, we don't need you promoting the idea of money and meaning. We need you to change how Walmart treats workers now. So first, examine and unwind your own complicity. Stop causing harm before you worry about doing more good. But what about those who desire and are ready to think about giving and want to do it better? I have two pieces of advice for you. I know you all love practical advice. The first is to shift from giving back to giving up. To shift from standing on top of the indefensible mountain and throwing a few scraps down to actually having the courage, the fortitude to look at your own role in an unjust system and be willing to invest in the kind of changes that would threaten your position. It's the difference between Jeff Bezos donating a billion dollars to homelessness and Jeff Bezos donating a billion dollars, let's imagine, to a future of unions project that is actually trying to strengthen worker power. That is not giving back. That would be giving up. That would make his stock worth less. But it would be good for America and good for the world. The second shift is from crowding government out to crowding government in. Too many plutocrats in our age give in ways that work around government and continue to help government atrophy. It is possible to give differently in a way where you the private giving serves as a startup incubator for government action and you test things in the quiet of philanthropy and then seek to mainstream them into our laws and institutions and systems. But my, I want to be clear, my real advice is not to those elites who would save the world. My real advice is to the rest of us, to the general public, to stop entrusting your future to the unelected elite, to strop, stop trusting that the people with the most to lose from real change are going to deliver it. And I believe this is already happening. All across this country, people are waking up to the phoniness of what has passed for real change and setting their sights on true reform. And I want to end on this note of hope. Donald Trump does not regularly fill people with hope. But Donald Trump is the greatest gift to those of us who have been hoping for a long time that fake change by phony billionaires is the real deal. We have gotten so lucky, in a sense, To have a president who flamboyantly discredits the worst myths of the last few decades, that billionaires are going to save us, that it's possible to fight for the least among us while enriching yourself, that those who caused our problems are the best equipped to solve them. Donald Trump is the reductio ad absurdum of a culture that asks the rich to fix what they have broken. And it is my hope that when the Trump era passes, when Orange Mussolini is gone, it will not only be the end of a presidency, but the end of this gilded age and the birth of a new age of reform. Thank you very much.
4: You're listening to Money and Mean It. For additional content and information about upcoming events, visit socialcapitalmarkets.net.
1: Anand's call-outs of a system that's fundamentally extractive was reinforced in a very different setting in comments from Joan Carling during a conversation on international investing and indigenous rights. Joan Carling is a recent winner of the UN Champions of the Earth Award for lifetime achievement, and has been defending the land rights of indigenous people for over 20 years, facing threats to her life and security as an environmental defender. Her comments are powerful.
4: In a lot of the indigenous communities that I visited, Uh, the the reciprocity and and, uh, value of of sharing can be seen from, say, we treat, uh, when when we use the the forest, we make sure that we don't cut so much trees that will affect the other wildlife or the watershed, for example. Mm -hmm. We use that, but in return, the forest is providing us what we need, but we make sure that it, 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 it sustains. The other one in terms of, 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 of the sharing is when communities have surplus in their product, in, in their, for example, fruit trees in the village, they will get what they need and they put the rest of their harvest on the side of the road so that others can share mm. that fruit. Mm. What do we learn from that? That what, what, we need, what we get is what we need and beyond what we need is what we share. And, and I, I think if we, if we look at in investing in that sense, it may, it's going beyond selfishness. It's going beyond not only thinking what can I get or what good do I do, but what kind of change and empowerment do I create. Mm-hmm. And for me, I look at this as more a relationship of co-stewardship of partnership that is based on making the other party as powerful as you are. It's changing also the power dynamics where respect for each other Mm -hmm. in a reciprocal way is built in into Mm -hmm. that kind of of partnership. And, And it's already clear, like, why are there still huge gaps in the implementation, for example, of the sustainable development goals? because there is no accompanying redistribution of wealth. The gap of inequality remains the same. Wealth is still concentrated in the hands of the the few. It's not shared. Mm. And that is because greed persists to be the dominating value of a lot of people. And if we don't look at the lens of indigenous peoples where value is something that we share, something that is based on solidarity and cooperation, we will not get there. And the challenge that we face now, even if we're talking of of social investing, for example, is how how can that change the power relations? How can we, in fact, bring power to communities and not to disempower them? by elevating their capacity to participate in decision-making through their economic empowerment. So it's not enough to just build economic empowerment, but more so, how are they participating in decision-making that makes sure that the wealth of the earth is shared, that there is sustainability in when we pursue development. That is shared by all. So, that is, I, I think, what we need to, to consider or reflect uh, upon.
1: This theme of shifting power, which shows up in conversations about income inequality, indigenous rights, climate, is a layer deeper than conversations about investing in change. It exposes the ways that money's been moving around with the intention of doing good, but not really addressing underlying root causes of unfairness and injustice. So let's go back to Joy Anderson, one of the early pioneers of gender lens investing, who continues to break new ground with her work around the world on gender-based violence, and who passionately demands that we expand the conversation about gender to a conversation of power.
2: One of the key things that I want us to focus on is if we don't make the field of gender lens investing more intersectional, it will fail as a movement, it will fail in its impact, Um, and it's, it's one of those pieces that's just at the edge of, and it's almost everything that's happened in women's movements over time is, I'll attend towards privilege, right? It is a, a, an ongoing challenge of what has happened in women's movements to focus on women of privilege um, and, and a, a certain race, certain color, a certain approach, a certain position. And if we don't fix that, it's not gonna work. And so one of the ways to think about this is this slide of thinking about how do we frame questions of gender as about power, not just identity. Because this isn't about women. This is about structures of power. This is about systemic structural inequities that don't work for lots of people. And so what a gender analysis, where I think it's powerful, is it's a lens to see where there's power, privilege, and bias operating. But if we're only looking at that through gender, we will fail to understand what gender really means, and we will also fail to understand what it means to be a woman, which isn't a single experience. Like, I want us to stop saying women don't take risks. What a ridiculous statement. All women, anywhere, What about childbirth, for the love of God? Right? there's just so many ways in which thinking about who who we're investing in, where we're investing. So this is the second piece is, so first of all, thinking about it, framing it, I want us to shift a little bit from thinking about identity to thinking about power. And then the second piece is any gender analysis needs to be specific. And this is where I think it makes us better investors. Because it's not just, oh look, I found a woman. It's right, in this particular supply chain, what are the risks of the power dynamics in trading sexual favors for participation in the supply chain? That is a complex system. That needs to be analysis. Uh, I was talking to an investor the other day who said 70% of the people in my supply chain are women, therefore my product helps women. Like, not good enough. What does that look like? What are the power dynamics in the supply chain? How is that playing out? So making sure that we ground, an analy- ground our analysis in a very specific context, and, and I don't know, maybe I need to have this slogan of eradicate essentialism. Are you with me on that? Like bumper stickers? Eradicate essentialism. There isn't a single essential identity of what it means to be a woman that we can somehow proclaim from the rafters. It is a diverse complex experience of power so we need to go we need to go broader we need to go deeper and then we need to go long we have this challenge that we think about gender as static it is changing and i am beyond livid that our government in the United States has decided to eliminate, eliminate transsexual experiences as what defines you. You can choose. You can be all kinds of different things and it isn't about our DNA. So thinking about the ways in which gender changes, what is the future of gender? Which leads me to this next point, which is, if we're thinking about the future for the love of God, let's think about hope. Fundamentally, what I love about investing is that it's about the future. It's making a long-term bet. So think about these questions. As a philanthropist, how would you invest if you believed your philanthropy was working? As a government, if you believed that your development aid was working? If we were actually changing what communities could participate in the global economy, how would you invest differently now? And then this third one that comes so close to Criterion's work on gender-based violence, how would we invest differently if we believed that it was possible
1: to eradicate gender-based violence? You're listening to Money & Meaning. I'm Lindsay Smalling, and you can find out more about the SOCAP Conference, SOCAP 365, and sign up for our newsletter at socialcapitalmarkets.net. One of the persistent conversations at the intersection of money and meaning is around the actual term impact investing. How is it defined? What counts as impact investing? An industry is organized around this term, but still some take issue with it. Two highly revered investors in the impact space, Ariane Shute of Core Innovation Capital and Mitch Kapor of Kapor Capital, discuss the term a little bit, but more importantly, share their thoughts on real impact versus fake impact.
5: What should we talk about? Um, why we hate the term impact investing. Do you? Uh, yeah, it's super unhelpful. Why? Why? Um, It's kind of discredited at this point because it means different things to different people. The orthodoxy in the world of money management thinks it's necessarily concessionary. Some people, as you said, think it's philanthropy in disguise. And it it distracts from the important issues of trying to build companies that simultaneously create real social and economic value. And I'd rather focus on that than get lost in labels.
6: Hmm.
5: Makes sense. What about you? You run a fund. You have LPs. We don't have LPs at Capricorn Capital, so yeah, you have we have a, a degree advantage of freedom on me. to, you know, take more extreme positions.
6: Yeah. So I, the term is more problematic upstream than downstream for us. So a lot of L, in, in the LP world, while impact investing is said to have trillions of dollars of potential interest, uh, we find that the greatest interest comes from people who have financial interest in our impact work or strategic interest in our impact work. Almost all the kind of mission-driven impact is uh, is real but very temporary. So we find that a lot of the impact investors are are catalytic. They make a one-time placement on a shiny object and then they move on to the next shiny impact object, whereas these are all long-term things we're doing, right? These are not shiny objects, challenges that we're tackling. We're tackling big social and environmental issues, social in my case, everything in your case. Um, And so indeed LPs are much more skeptical about the term. On the the entrepreneur side actually, kind of the term notwithstanding, but being mission-driven is actually a competitive advantage. And so we consistently get into deals because we are genuine about our mission. And I think people feel that, entrepreneurs feel that, right? Like they're taking pay cuts, et cetera, et cetera, to do something outlandish and big and difficult. And it's actually a competitive advantage.
5: That was the biggest surprise for us when we went all in on impact in 2012. I, to be honest, was a bit skeptical It was Frida, my wife, who was nudging me about this, and I was afraid that it might chase off entrepreneurs if we said we're only investing in companies that close gaps of access or opportunity for underserved communities. Mm -hmm. It did chase off a few people, but what was completely surprising is what a brand advantage it was. When we planted a flag and said, this is what we care about, and we think about this, and this is how we measure ourselves. Entrepreneurs came out of the woodwork and said, I want you on my cap table. I've been told never I can't talk about this to people when I'm raising money, but this is where my heart is, mm-hmm. and if, I'm on your cap ta- if you're on my cap table, you're a counterweight to my other investors. And I said, yeah, but we're putting in like $150,000, $250,000 a deal and these other guys are doing $5 million. So it doesn't matter, your voice counts every bit as much. And so like you, we continue to win deals that we would otherwise be completely uncompetitive in. And that's a kind of a hidden and secret advantage. Now you know about it, but most people don't.
6: So let's double click on this yeah. idea, right? We're all yeah. here yeah. because we have some interest in social capital markets. Uh, you've talked about kind of real impact and fake impact. What what are some of the misnomers you see out there?
5: Well, so this is probably the single... Well, let me put it this way. When Anand uh, Giridharadas wrote Winners Take All, which I know he was here, and somebody said he got the only standing ovation, I, I was thrilled because it was one more thing that I didn't have to write, and I would never be able to write anything one one-hundredth is good, Mm -hmm. but basically he distinguishes between real change and fake change. And our metric, our criterion when we invest, as I said, is if this thing works, who's gonna benefit? And will it close a gap of access or opportunity for a low-income community or communities of color? And if it doesn't, It doesn't meet our impact criterion. So, just because something is edtech or health or fintech, yeah, fintech doesn't doesn't make it impact. And in fact, we see things like really great online tutoring marketplaces that, for two hundred dollars an hour, will get your kid the world's best tutor. And impressive technology, and the stuff works. And we go. This is anti-impact, this is gap widening, this is enabling affluent parents to purchase more advantage for their kids getting into college vis-a-vis uh, you know, everybody else. And people are sort of upset and offended. But it's EdTech, it's making the world a better place, it's helping people learn. And I'm going, no, that's, that's sort of fake change.
1: This clarification of real impact is important. And connects back to the deeper questions of shifting power. These strong voices are driving necessary rigor into the growing market for impact, and the global markets for impact are indeed growing. We were delighted to have Amit Bhatia, head of the Global Steering Group for Impact Investing, join us at SOCAP18. The Global Steering Group was spun out of the G8 Impact Investment Task Force in 2015 and is working to catalyze the impact investment movement globally. Amit provides encouraging perspective from his seat at the center of this global movement that the momentum is building and impact investing has all the hallmarks of a revolution destined for success.
7: In 1988, 30 years ago, the tech movement was very young. The world was busy, excited about the 20-kilogram cathode ray tube desktop, declaring the typewriter dead. and. Announcing to the world that Fortran and Kabul will be the road to Nirvana. But the visionaries right here had something else on their mind. But if you had asked anyone outside of Silicon Valley to take a bet that someday half the humanity will have a 200 gram or less device in their hand with real-time data, real-time connectivity, they would have told you, Stop smoking pot. Go write science fiction. 30 years later, we know Apple and Microsoft, Amazon and Facebook, Intel and Cisco were all born in that movement. In 30 years, those newborns rule global capitalism. In 2018, right here, right now, Steve Jobs' words ring in my mind that you cannot connect dots looking forward. You can only connect those dots looking backward. So right here, right now, another phenomenon is taking place, that of the impact movement. The spirit in this room is not very different from what I have experienced back in the 80s and 90s in Silicon Valley startup town halls. You know something, very few know. You know something, very few believe. But I'm here to reassure you, you've got it right. The impact movement is much like the tech movement, showing the same growth trajectory. With $26 trillion in responsible, sustainable, and impact investing, this is not just a leap of faith. We're already connecting the dots. And this is happening because Rousseau's social contract, written 250 years ago, has expired. As the people I meet in the front line in a country like India, who live in poverty, Hobbes' Leviathan, documented 350 years ago, has turned out heartless. Even Adam Smith's invisible hand, back from 1860s can do with a little bit of guidance. We are well on our way to creating the impact economies of the future. We are turning capitalism on its head. And this Capitalism 2.0 is going to be very different from Capitalism 1.0. Don't get me wrong, Capitalism 1.0 delivered a lot of good unbelievable, unprecedented improvements in quality of life, health, transport, you know, the industrial revolution, tech revolution, which I just mentioned. But you'll all agree, it has exasperated poverty, it has increased inequity, it's devastated the planet. So I'm going to take next ten minutes just to convince you that this Movement is global, this movement is going to win, and 30 years from now, when the history will be written of the impact movement, you'll be able to tell the story just the way we tell the story of the tech movement. So revolutions, there are three things about revolutions I gotta tell you. One, all revolutions are simple and bold ideas that restore justice or balance. Think of it, women should vote. All citizens are equal. Dictatorship is bad. Similarly, the impact narrative is a simple and bold idea. That capital has a higher purpose. Capital must be used to deliver a social or environmental impact alongside financial returns. That impact can drive profitability and need not impair it. Second, all revolutions are decentralized and replicable. Think of this. At the beginning of the last century, Susan Anthony here in the US and Emmeline Pankhurst on the other side of the Atlantic in the UK fought for women's suffrage at the same time without having internet and tweeting to each other and asking, what's your next move? Similarly, The impact movement has manifested in different ways. Responsible investing, sustainable investing, impact investing. We have a common vocabulary, a common toolkit, and we are proving to each other across every continent that profit and purpose can coexist. Third, revolutions are inclusive and abiding. Think of all major movements. They engaged all citizens, irrespective of caste, color, creed, religion. Even the recent Arab Spring, still work in progress for many, spread to 20-plus countries. Likewise, our movement is inclusive of philanthropies on the left and capitalists on the right, of for-profits and non-profits, of private markets and public markets. You've got to agree. At its core, the impact movement has characteristics that make successful revolutions.
1: We had a great time at SOCAP 18 and only wish more people could be part of the smart, thoughtful, inspiring conversations that take place during these events. This podcast is one way that we're making the tent even bigger to share the great insights, lessons learned, and audacious goals of the SOCAP community far and wide and we welcome in your experience and your perspective. I hope you enjoyed these clips from SOCAP 18, and I'd encourage you to check out other sessions from SOCAP 18 and past conferences on our YouTube channel, SOCAP Markets. As a reminder, please do rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen. Those ratings help more people find us and continue to expand the conversation at the intersection of money and meaning. Till next time.
0: You've been listening to Money and Meaning, unlikely allies building new markets for impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are heard. To learn more, check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SoCapMarkets.